Welcome back to Practically Intelligent. Today, we're excited to welcome Praveen Parthosh, a former senior research scientist at Google and founder and chair of the Data Perf Research Working Group at ML Commons. We are going to chat with him. This is a really wide-ranging conversation about oh, yeah. how data benchmarking is evolving and how we should think about the evolving performance of LLMs on a holistic way. We really, really enjoyed this conversation. It was fun. We touched on a bunch of stuff. Um, Sanan, I think, what was your favorite part? Yeah, I was about to say, I think this is probably one of, so we usually, you know, a peek behind the curtains. We usually send our, our guests an email before the recording just to say, like, here's what we want to talk about. You know, what do you want to talk about? And we kind of figure out the general arc of the episode. I feel like this was, I, I was annoying him at a certain point because <laughs> I just kept writing more and more questions that I had because in our, our initial introductions, he just kind of wanted to cover so much stuff. And I was so excited about it because we were really um, sinking on our, our worldviews on this stuff. So I think my favorite part is when we start to, I think it's towards the end, but we start to talk about the lessons learned from a computer engineering, computer science standpoint in, in talking about AI systems as if they were and they should be thought about this way, not so different from any other computer engineering problem with the added benefit of this, you know, um, machine learning capability. So I think the parallels that we draw were, were really quite fun to talk about. And I think really going to be useful for people to think about, you know, in, in the long term. So I've, I've rambled enough. You're going to hear me ramble some more. I say we just kind of jump right in. Let's do it. Well, Praveen, thank you so much for being on the show. This is uh, really exciting. I'm going to just jump right into things. Uh, where do you see the current state of AI benchmarking? And and, and you, know, you take that to wherever you want to go, but uh, I think our, our listeners are going to be really curious about kind of the practical applications of AI benchmarking and kind of how people approach it and what are some of the pitfalls that you're seeing. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure. And that's a great question. Benchmarking is, you know, particularly critical for the way we move the field forward. So a shared benchmark, such as consider the first uh, interesting benchmark was Squad, the Stanford Question Answering Dataset. And that was a collection of a thousand questions that was extracted from Wikipedia using Mechanical Turk and turned into a question answer set. And early research when LSTM, LSTMs came along and after that, Transformers came along, but people could test their question answering systems on squad and report a metric. And you could then build a table, kind of a leaderboard, uh, where you could see which algorithms were performing the best on that, on that set. And so suddenly it created this shared way in which the community could move forward on a problem. Now, you know, you can think about it as almost like a mechanism for the research community to hill climb uh, because now the accuracy score on the squad test set is, is an objective function, is a metric, and you can try to improve that. You can see what methods, what kind of training data, what kinds of architecture give me a higher performance. And likewise, in uh, Vision, uh, ImageNet was such an important influential data set. So the ImageNet moment uh, which was when AlexNet achieved high accuracy on a whole bunch of categories, like thousands of categories of objects, which was never done in computer vision before. 
And that is what led to recognition by the Turing Award of Yeshua Benjio, Jan Lekun, and Jeff Hinton, because that, that demonstrated something remarkable had happened. And the existence of these you know, shared benchmarks allow the community to move forward. But at the same time, let's look at these examples. We run into some problems. So for the first squat uh, data set was, uh, did not contain the way it was constructed. It did not contain questions that couldn't be answered. So for instance, uh, when asked the question, what is Barack Obama's favorite color? Um, the state-of-art algorithms that had cracked the squad benchmark would very confidently say black and cite the Wikipedia article as a reference. Now, the Wikipedia article has no mention of Obama's favorite color at all, but contains a color term repeated many times. And such heuristics worked when it was guaranteed the document contains an answer, but that didn't work when the document didn't contain the answer. So Squad 2.0 was released by the authors realized this problem, and they added a bunch of unanswerable questions. And that led the community to figure out there were two questions. First, determine if the document can answer the question, and then find the answer to the question. So such systems were then able to realize that one cannot answer what is Barack Obama's favorite color. So as you can see, as we change the benchmarks, that changes the hill that the community is climbing, the kind of components and capabilities you would need to build. And so that's the you know, role of benchmarks, the, the shared measures of progress, like a compass for the research community. But at the same time, you know, there's, those are you know, proxies, right? Like we, the, you cannot t- take the whole universe of question answering and turn it into one particular benchmark. So what we've seen is proliferation of lots and lots of different benchmarks, and typically now uh, published results will contain you know, performance on 10 different benchmarks. And benchmarks themselves these days have become baskets of benchmarks. So Big Bench and Superglue, they, they, they contain you know, dozens of other benchmarks. Uh, so that's the direction of growth that the community has taken. But even that is not enough because the systems are, uh, you know, getting so powerful that they're able to, you know, saturate the benchmark, achieve a human-level performance of the benchmark very quickly. So there's a famous analysis by Dawi Keeler, who was at Meta, who built Dynabench and now is running contextual AI, in which he shows this benchmark saturation graph. And what used to take years now takes months. So each benchmark becomes expires pretty quickly. So this is really an interesting point we find ourselves and the tools that we are throwing at it. So there are some new ideas that people are exploring, like adversarial approaches to probing such systems. But it seems like, you know, the bigger problem here is that we might have grown, outgrown this phase of using, you know, small crowdsource benchmarks as a way to measure performance. Um, We need to figure out a way to turn this whole research program differentiable, in a sense, you know, like the, that's the agenda, right? Like as long as we can turn something into a hill that we can climb, then we can use gradient descent and we can move forward incrementally. So I feel like benchmarks give us this shared compass, but each one of these benchmarks that we have out there are limited and are flaws. None of them point to the true north entirely. They just give us hints in that direction. and. At this point, we're at a point where we might need to think about some radically new ideas to, to guide us because we need more precise compasses. We're, we're matured at that point of building systems and technology.
Yeah, no, I, there's a lot of great points in there. And I, I think I'll start with the, the historical context, well, the modern historical context between talking about AlexNet and ImageNet um, and, and uh, the squad data set. Because I remember working with squad you know, 1.0 and 2.0, uh, even back you know, years ago when I, before Transformers, to your point, I mean, working with RNNs and LSTMs and for even just talking about embeddings and text embeddings, I would always use these kinds of data sets because to your point, it was a way to not only feel connected to a greater community of this is what the researchers are using. This is what the real data scientists are using in my class, you know, the aspiring data scientists. Like, this is what real data scientists are using. This is the data set that we're going to do. It does really ground students and, and introductory level uh, engineers. But then to your point, at a certain point, the community, but not only the community, the individual will outgrow that. And, and after a while, you say, well, yes, you know, even recontextualizing the idea of question answering, going from yes, no to yes, no, non-answerable, or I don't know, uh, even beyond then, you can break that down into closed uh, QA, open QA, general QA, trivia QA, which is one I see often. And, and, and to your point, even even more, I was reading a paper today, uh, totally unrelated to NLP, but I, to your point, I got to a page where it was just three quarters of the page was, here's 10 benchmarks on the columns, and here's 15 models on the rows, and then theirs was bolded at the bottom. And I was like, oh my God, this is just so much to like parse and look at, and I don't know what the takeaway is. And a lot of the times it almost feels like marketing. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. A lot of the times I feel like I'm looking at this table and they go, well, we bolded our results, but we've put the others here. It's almost like when you Google, how do I, you know, alternatives to Zoom, 20 articles come up saying, hi, we're better than Zoom. Hi, we're better than Zoom. Hi, we're better than Zoom. And the idea is like, well, this is a competitive analysis. If you're looking for the best model, we are going to show you a comparison. And because the, the person on the other end may not know what they're looking for, it will come down to, well, theirs is bolded and clearly that number is slightly higher. I might as well use theirs. So it becomes almost this, this way of convincing others to use their open source model, even though it might not be the best metric for the consumer trying to select an approach or a model. So uh, I guess given all that, what kinds of radical transformations do you think are are on the horizon or are just on the horizon and and like what what are what is your team working on in this space to try to alleviate some of these issues so i i'll take a you know a couple uh you know little tangents one one is that oh we we here are practically intelligent are are wild fans of tangents so please tangent away <laughs> welcome to tangent airways <laughs> uh, we might experience a little turbulence so what what you know one thing that first and foremost we haven't done as much is benchmark the data itself. So I've been working at ML Commons and started this working group called DataPerf, and we launched this uh, you know half a dozen different challenges that just measure the quality of data, not the quality of model. And so that's one approach area that we've been exploring, and you can learn more about it at dataperf.org. And we have an upcoming paper at NeurIPS uh, in New Orleans in December that we'll be presenting about it. It's a very large effort. There's, you know, 60 different teams and organizations across academia and corporations. And what we did was we said, 
you know, all you can do as a participant, think about like these leaderboards that we just talked about, where there is a test set and you're trying to get a position on the leaderboard. But instead, by, by changing your model, by building a better model. But instead, what we did was we froze the model. And we said, all you can do is manipulate the data. And can you get a position on the leaderboard by selecting, sampling, curating, cleaning data in a way that produces a better performance? So we changed the focus on looking at data directly instead of you know, thinking about the model. So that's like one area that we need to explore more. And we are at the beginning of that. We have right now built a platform and a community where one can come in and propose a new data-centric challenge in a new domain and put it out there. And it's not you know, entirely you know, automated. Uh, it requires a little bit of human touch and engineering because these you know, patterns are new um, compared to like the type of things that Kaggle, for instance, does. So that's one area, but I think that, you know, w one picture that you started painting as well is that these benchmarks are proxies, right? These benchmarks are like little tests that tell us that we're moving in the right direction. And we need them when we are beginning at the beginning of a process. But what do the benchmarks really imply? They imply a capability. And, you know, those are like little tests of that capability. Just like, you know, even if you think about exams, that we go through in like a school education or at co in college. These exams are a little test of whether we have learned something, right? And there are many ways to pass the exams. In fact, uh, you know, education researchers, one of the biggest problems that they, you know, lose their sleep about is the figuring out the distinction between rote learning and conceptual understanding. And the goal of the educational system is to impart conceptual understanding so then you can have the capability to carry out a certain kind of task. And the exams are these little proxies for that, right? And there are ways in which, you know, clever students can game the exams. And there are entire institutions like Kaplan that can help you game these exams and you'll be better off if you took that. And they don't really, you know, you can have a whole complex of exams and coaching and, you know, all of that, but they are not entirely in the service of the true goal that we have of education, which is giving you the capability, the competence. And so we should remember that these benchmarks, just like these tests, are just you know these little indicators, but what we want is competence. I, I want to give you a system that is competent at doing a certain kind of task, right? Let's say, let's consider the calculator, right? If you want to buy a calculator, you want the expectation is that, you know, the addition, multiplication, division, arithmetic that you want to do, whatever number of digits the calculator can handle, it'll give you correct answers every time. So that's the competence that you want to expect. Now, you know, how would you test that, right? Like with a test set. Any test set is going to be finite and might not be the best test set for like confirming 100% accuracy on all possible arithmetic questions that the calculator can answer. So in that such a case, we have almost a sound proof of why the calculator is correct. So the way the systems and the circuits are designed is it's a proof of that competence. So that's another way to say that you have competence, right? You could have, uh, you passed a multiple choice test, you know, you passed an interview, uh, you submitted a proof. So these are all these different mechanisms. So all we want to say is, you know, eventually you want to deploy it in some real world circumstance and it be able to you know, demonstrate the competence that it claimed that it has. 
And so, for instance, uh, I was at Google for 13 years and witnessed the launch of some of these, uh, you know, transformers and the bird architecture. These were built in-house. And the search, uh, you know, ranking team, search engineering team, they were very careful in evaluating and just testing these systems, even though when they just do a, did a first, you know, comparison on the baseline metrics, it performed as well as the existing system. But they were not convinced. They, they were worried and they poked and they tested the system and they found other weaknesses that the metric, basically they realized that the metric doesn't entirely capture. Once we deploy it to billions of queries every day, all sorts of things will happen that we are actually liable for. And so they were cautious and they spent like, I think upwards of two years in just testing the system before deploying it. So that is the difference between you know, benchmark you know, and metrics and the competence. And at some situations when you are you know, liable or stakes are high, then it's the competence that you want to care about. At the end of the day, if you're working in healthcare, then you want FDA approval to demonstrate the competence. And so I think that we should move more towards thinking about other approaches to claim competence. So right now, for instance, there are papers that are published about you know, neural uh, networks, language models, uh, abilities to do arithmetic, to continue with this calculator example. And most notably, ChatGPT, GPT 3.5 was, you know, you know, maybe something like 70, 80% accurate. It was actually reasonably accurate, and it's very impressive, right? Like, it wasn't designed to do that. And um, then the GPT 4 was actually 4% accurate. So for some reason, that the changes and improvements that made actually hurt its arithmetic capability. And then, then some folks out of China built a gigantic neural network just focused on doing arithmetic, and they got to almost 100% accuracy. And so, you know, I think that at some point, you know, we might just want proof. Like if you're doing, you know, logic and reasoning and arithmetic, in these worlds, there are actual proofs of competence. You don't need to be empirical about it. If I give you a theorem with a proof, then you have absolute certainty that it is correct. So there are other mechanisms that are less empirical that come with more sound guarantees. So we might want to think about uh, you know, approaches like that as we expand towards thinking about capabilities, not just performance on a leaderboard. Got it. I think one thing that you and Sanan are alluding to is that engineers want to see how a specific model performs uh, on their specific metric, on their specific tax. So when you talk about competence, each engineer may actually define it uh, quite differently. I think folks that, you know, just a very practical question, folks want to know what's competent on their specific uh, data and their specific model, but that's very varied and hard, right? So data freshness is more apparent for certain use cases than if you're fi you're looking to fine-tune data. If you're looking on specific problems, robustness of your data set, you might be working for actually very different data sets to augment your use case uh, than another. And so I almost want to take, uh, you know, I'm a data scientist or an ML engineer. I, uh, you know, I'm looking at these specific high-level metrics that I'm used to. And, you know, for the last decade, you've been trained to look at precision recalls. So in this new Wild West, Praveen, what is the advice how do you even decompose such a varied problem, right? We need to move in this new direction that's more intelligent 
uh, beyond looking at this bolded metric. But what is your advice to a data scientist that is looking to even understand? And people know the problem is more varied, but we still resort to uh, you know just looking at uh, you know these uh, these sort of high level metrics. So what? How do we decompose that problem of where a data scientist? How do we uh, how do we compose a new framework? For thinking through uh, thinking through data, if we're just a random data engineer working on problem uh, on a specific uh, problem, try to augment our data. How do we how do we approach this? Right. So where we are, I I would say that you know what you're asking amounts in data science terms amounts to asking, you know, what is the precision and recall of my test set itself? Right. Because I'm using a test set to estimate the precision and recall of some model, some system. Like the squad is being used as a test set to evaluate the precision and recall of some question answering systems. But then you can also ask the meta question, which is also a data science question, what is the precision and recall of this test set itself? Now, as we see, like if you look at squad 2.0, given that it was missing unanswerable questions. So that's an example of question that is is not in the recall, right? Like, so it's, it has low recall because it's missing a class of questions. And then there is other class of questions. Since squad was studied in great depth, you know, questions about causality, questions that were, for instance, uh, about non-factual things because the data set was constructed entirely on Wikipedia. So by, by, by definition, all questions were factual. But if you look at the universe of questions, like a search engine gets, uh, there's a significant amount of query volume that contains the word should. You know, should I do this or that? And those questions are not answered by a factual source like Wikipedia. And you have to go to forums and, you know, other kinds of opinions, sources of opinions. So the recall of this test set is not very high. So as a data scientist, I would be worried about what's missing in my test set. That Because I'm making a claim about a competence, and if I say that it, this system can answer questions, I didn't say there was a footnote, but not uh, non-factual ones, but not the ones that are unanswerable, but not the ones like, if I am making that claim, uh, you know, I'm between the leap between what the test set captures and what the phenomena or the competence I'm claiming, I should be very cognizant of that. So I would say that we must strive to figure out what are these blind spots in our test sets uh, of between the gap between you know what what the competence claims and what we currently have sampled in the test set, and we need to cover those areas. So this distributional mismatch between the you know like often when real you know like one example was in fact uh, an early paper from Google where they showed pretty strong results on diabetic retinopathy, and turns out that when people actually deployed that system, then they there was the results were not that good. And it was a mismatch between what was the actual real-world sample and what sample was represented in the test set. So I think if we rely on the methodology of test sets and benchmarks, then the test sets themselves are not like ground truth and a representative sample. So test sets contain errors. Like there was a study done by Curtis Northcutt, who is currently running CleanLab, and he looked at you know 10 different most cited data sets, including ImageNet, and he found that there were, you know, anywhere from you know three to ten percent errors in these test set. And when the, he tried to fix those errors, um, then 
the performance changed so that you know ResNet 18 was doing better than ResNet 50, which is a much more expensive model. So that makes you know begs the question. So that's like a precision error, right? And what we previously talked about squad was like recall errors. So we should strive to measure quality of test sets and improve the quality of those test sets. And we are beginning to figure out in the work done with ML Commons some of these mechanisms of attacking, like these adversarial uh, approaches. So one of the experiments um, I ran uh, with uh, Laura Arroyo was this project, and Ka Wong was this project called Cats for ML, where we basically challenged participants to submit images that would fool the classifier. So even though the classifier had a performance uh, of like 90% on the overall data set, from the same data set they could sample images which the classifier was getting wrong. And we chose some categories like uh, you know bus driver, teacher, uh, um, chopsticks. And I remember like we ended up with, we had 16,000 submissions, we ended up with a data set of 10,000 on which we verified with human labelers and the, the, in fact the machine was getting it wrong. So the, in this test set the precision was zero even though uh, the state of art were performing at 0.9 on all of the standard test sets. So this was an adversarial approach. And you know the kind of errors we found was interesting, like an empty bus, for instance, it would very confidently say that there is a bus driver. Um, or if there is a, uh, there was a bowl of soup and you know, then ramen, and it would be confident that there's chopsticks in the picture. So there were these errors that were like these kind of contextual hallucinations. But we discovered that by you know encouraging people to just basically attack. And this approach was invented by Panos Eparatos at NYU in 2012, where he built a system called Beat the Machine, where he, it incentivized mechanical turf workers to find an example of hate speech that'll fool the system. And if you fool the system and subsequently were verified that you were right that this was hate speech, then you got like 10 times more incentive than if you, the system recognized it. So there are these type of approaches that we are exploring that are out there now. Red teaming has become like a standard you know, testing methodology for language models. Awesome. I, again, so many things to dive into here. I, the, I really love what you just said, specifically around the idea of ground truth, because in a lot of people's experience working with data, that term, it's almost like a term of art these days to say like, this is our ground truth labeled data set, right? Everyone points to it and says, this is the North star. We did it. We found the data. But to your point, what, what that kind of happens psychologically, what, what happens is the more you say that, the more you kind of reinforce to yourself that there, there couldn't be no fault in our data. It's the ground truth. And as soon as you start to prod at it just a little bit and say, well, how did you label it? Well, it's a mix of open source and some stuff we labeled in-house. It's like, oh, has you know a labeler who has been trained in your framework gone over each and every one of these data points? No you start to notice the cracks pretty quickly. So I really like that, that, that pushing back on that idea that just because you call something your ground truth does not make it ground truth. Because if you misrepresent, or not misrepresent, well, you could misrepresent, but if you mislabel data points, you're just asking for trouble. So there are some approaches, you know, quantitatively speaking, that I, I personally really like. Uh, there's this one approach called, I think, area under the margin ranking, uh, I believe, which is one approach to finding mislabeled data. And I think their example was actually 
I think it was something like ImageNet where they were they were showing an example of an image database where they were finding mislabeled data as a pre-processing step. And that, that idea that working on your data almost as much as, if not more, than working on your model is something I, I personally am, am extremely passionate about. Um, eagle, eagle-eyed listeners will, if you've ever read my books, in one of my books, my first feature engineering book, in the first chapter, I, I make a big note. And I remember this was like six years, seven years ago. So it was my, my publishers were like, why are you saying this? I made a point up front and saying, this is not a machine learning tuning book. The point of this book is I am going to only ever use logistic regression. I am setting myself up right now. Like this is the only model I'm allowing myself to use. I have to only find data uh, performance increments through data preprocessing, feature engineering, transformations, whatever it is, selections, so be it. And that was the whole premise. Uh, and the point was to prove, or at least show, that you can actually get these boosts in performance by manipulating only your data alone and, and not even touching your model's parameters, or at least the model architecture. Uh, now, that being said, all of this, again, to your point, comes back to, well, you got to trust the data. And not only do you have to trust the data, you have to trust that your data is representative of the system you're trying to model. So coming back to something you said earlier, something I'm personally very curious about, uh, being a ma former mathematician, how do you approach the, the concept of a proof in the world of LLMs? How, how do you even uh, think about proving that your LLM can solve a task versus showing your LLM can solve a task using a data set? <laughs> That's the question, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> we're really, we're really, that's, that's the most interesting question at this point that the field is facing, right? This, uh, these benchmarks served us, um, you know, really well, right? So this began in around 2010. And so the first decade, you know, the benchmarks like really allowed a lot of progress to happen and a lot of people from all over the world to be able to work on the same problem. And... You know, and then we evolved to like this basket of benchmarks and that's like still, you know, like we're like hobbling on the, the crutches, you know, like we're moving forward on this, but we're realizing that that's not enough. And like with LLMs, you know, it's become even more challenging to compare and test these systems. So, you know, <clears throat> I think that, and it's also challenging for, you know, one of the things about benchmark is that you can do this kind of rapid iterations. You know, you can submit a new model and run it and you know find how well you did but this idea doesn't work very well when you know each iteration costs tens of millions of dollars to pre-train a language model for instance so i think that we need to think about collectively as a field you know like how do we measure progress because what benchmarks are, are these proxy estimates of progress and you know we are so powerful these things are so powerful and also so expensive right so monolithic and so I feel at this point in time that, you know, we might just need to recognize that this monolithic approach is not sufficient. We need a more modular approach. And we need different components that do different things that we can test more clearly, like what that component promises. So, for instance, you know, one of the most successful, you know, maybe the first killer app, 
of language models has been application to uh, internal enterprise you know information um, access i would say like i mean in some sense for instance using vector databases and using retrieval augmented generation to index your private documents your corporate documents and then make them accessible to you for in form of question answering or chat or some some other form of interface now that is you know that that is like you know i i and my i think there's probably at least a dozen companies that i can think of that have like well funded you know uh, you know resources that are going after this problem in the last you know 6 months but it's really interesting to trace how it happened so uh, the first demonstration uh, in 2015 was of wordvec which was which did the you know magical thing that was king plus man minus woman equals queen so it represented words as vectors and was able to show that these vectors contained enough semantics that you could do this kind of arithmetic that made common sense and in 2017 by 2017 people had built vector databases because once it was clear that these embeddings contain semantic information that allowed people to to do that both inside google and outside google however you know the peak interest in this technology began like towards the end of last year early this year uh, after you know generative ai you know the storm was kicked off by chatgpt so it's really interesting and in how that is being used like most of the magic in the system these rag systems are actually indexing your documents into vectors and bringing them back to you retrieval augmented generation and then using the thin layer of language model to craft you know the response for you so what is happening is uh the llm is acting one as a component in this overall system it's not the only thing that's doing the question answering unlike the idea of just going to chat gpt and getting you know your job done by prompting it or fine tuning it it's actually an entire modular system that contains index of your documents that's one thing the other thing is the llm is not at the center you know it's almost a copernican flip you know the llm is acting as an interface and a lot of the magic is happening with these embeddings and in the vector database and in the retrieval process so i feel that this is just an example of how things are going to look like as we move forward as we move forward we'll have many of these different components that solve different problems and we hook them up and now we're not testing the monolithic llm um but we're testing how well for instance what is the precision of documents that this rag system retrieves when i make a query that can be independently evaluated just like search engines were back in the day and the third thing that this case study shows is it's also how you know llms are unlocking power of technologies that were around so this technology for doing embeddings and retrieval using vector database was around since 2017 but this is what made it happen so I, i feel like maybe that's the shape of things to come and many many more new components can be added for precisely the type of things that llms are struggling at at this point yeah and again i think we've said this on the show dozens of times but my my personal philosophy on llms you know at a high level is that they are exceptional reasoning machines they are not the best thinking machines right they are they are incredible at being given 
you know, insane amounts of context and saying, oh, given these 20 pages, answer this one question. They're really good at that kind of work, but they're not as good as coming back, you know, almost full circle. They're not as good as closed QA, you know, not given the actual context to answer this question. That's where the hallucinations tend to come in. So to, to kind of, again, bring this full circle, when we're talking about squad, this is very specifically an, an open book question answering test, right? Given context and a question, answer the question given the context. And RAG is just the same thing with, uh, with a vector database tacked on. Well, here's the question. Let me go ahead and retrieve that. Let me look up in the textbook real quick, grab the context. Now, separate task, given a question and a context, answer the question. So you end up with this modularity, which is, to a developer, you know, almost music to their ears, because now I can test two things and have a really good sense for where things are breaking down in the pipeline. Did Is the document messed up? Does, I'll even add some more in. Is the chunking um, actually chunking up the information appropriately? Is the embedding actually embedding the semantic information from our chunks correctly? Is our buy encoder or whatever we're using for our embedding actually matching things up correctly? Are we retrieving the right documents? Is the question and answering system actually answering questions given the right content? So you have this chain of tasks that all end up with someone asks a question and they get an answer back. But on the back end, it, it's a lot more steps happening. And that speaks to to kind of wrap it all up in a nice little bow, this kind of, this trend we see of, you know, blank is all you need. I mean, obviously, you know, coming from the the fact that the Transformer paper is called Attention is All You Need, again, coming from a human standpoint, it's really appealing to say, finally, this AI can do, this is all we need. But to the real, you know, the production level machine learning engineer, they know, well, the LLM is one component of the 20 things that have to happen for our end user to get their answer. Um, so in, in your words, what is the what is the reconciliation that has to happen between where, you know, the blank is all you need uh, trend and the actual productionization of these kinds of ecosystems. Like what, what has to happen to get more people on the boat of modularity, testing, and benchmarking, uh, to, in, in, in your words? I think it's really interesting. I mean, if you, I can speculate a little bit about why we are here. You know, it seems very obvious, right? What you were saying moments ago, every computer scientist in the audience was probably were vigorously nodding their heads throughout it, right? We, you know, that's what we, how we were taught, to break a problem down into smaller problems, build tests for the, those components, hook those components up and then do integration and different people were responsible and you could assemble a gigantic thing out of such a process. That's what the software engineering is all about. You know, as quickly as in your, you know, first, you know, few classes, you learn that you have to write small modular functions that you can compose in so many different ways and reuse of code and you know having components that used in different all of that so that's how we want to build systems that's what computer scientists are taught to do things and where we have is we have this one very powerful thing and this thing the so for instance you know llama too you know like it, it there's no sub components in there you take it and then you can do a few things on top of it you can prompt it differently you can fine tune it and you get an answer so it kind of breaks down like the typical you know computer science you know setup 
And when you look at, go talk to people in industry who are trying to build, you know, serve a problem, solve a problem, then you see that their systems indeed do have components. And, and so I feel like, you know, the first of all, I would say that we do need to, you know, turn this whole AI research from this rocket science-like approach to computer science, where we do have components, we do have modularity, we do have testing, all of these features that we know how to build robust systems. Now, you know, why are we here? I think that this seems so obvious, but I'll tell you, I think that there are people who think that this is blasphemous. So when in AAAI 2020 in New York, uh, right after Yeshua Benjo and uh, other uh, Trinity, they won the Turing Award. They had a panel with Daniel Kahneman, the guy who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and they were having a discussion about you know System One, System Two, and Daniel Kahneman brought to the table the point that there are two different kind of systems, and you know System One is this kind of fast automatic system, uh, and System Two is effortful and deliberate and uses symbols. And the entire panel was completely opposed to him. Joshua and Jeff clearly said that, you know, it is not a hybrid system. It is, it's very important to them that it's, you know, neurons, neurons all the way. It's differentiable all the way, where symbols don't have that property. So this is a philosophical, aesthetic, you know, position that the leading researchers have, have. And maybe this has, you know, gone into the community. And so other researchers also bring this way of thinking. And this has been there in AI before as well. Like, you know, if you look at it at the beginning, like 50 years ago or so, in, you know, when uh, backpropagation was invented, early on there was not enough compute for those methods to do much well. But on top of that, Marvin Minsky had a proof that it can't solve the XOR problem. And that resulted in a whole bunch of research, uh, you know, field in, in the setback for that field. But Jeff Hinton and other people, like, you know, really persisted for, like, 50 years and continued working on it and then got to a point where, you know, these things actually showed, like, tremendous capabilities that we hadn't seen before. Likewise, you know, a few months ago, uh, one of the pioneers of AI, Doug Lennett, uh, he died, he passed away. Uh, he was uh, the builder of Psyche, uh, and he was one of the most brilliant stars coming from the, you know, symbolic community of AI, and then he turned down job offers at Stanford and places like that to go start a company because his vision was that we need to build a repository of all common sense knowledge in logical representation that a machine can reason with. And so he kept chugging away at that problem for 40 years with funding of anywhere between a few million dollars from government and other sources, and sometimes more, sometimes less, depending upon the cycle. And I think the system currently has like something like, you know, 10 million axioms about, you know, what happens when it rains and, you know, what is a celebrity, all kinds of things, and you can do reasoning with that. And like... You know, like I just want to use these two examples to show that, you know, AI is being driven by people who are very, very, you know, um, you know, the word that comes to my mind is stubborn. But, you know, they're driven and they're willing to take a hypothesis, like really all the way. I mean, so, and then there was kind of a fight between these neural and symbolic camps. I was giving a talk about this and, 
somebody pointed out that you know but yeah of course these people are upset because you know we kept them in the basement you know like the idea was when the symbolic methods were at its peak early on then that was getting you know there was the 1980s expert systems boom which funded a lot of money brought in a lot of money it was of similar scale actually um maybe a little smaller but um AAAI had 25000 people in audience which is similar to the size of Europe today and i'm told that there was a champagne fountain at the 1985 AAAI um but it was at the same time there was a similar focus that it was all symbolic so if you had something that had a data driven approach or component in it then that didn't fit in because the researchers had like that perspective as well as i feel like you know you guys maybe know better that i feel like the investment community also adopts a similar focus on the dominant paradigm so it's hard to tell the story that are so different from what the story other people are telling so even though this seems like this modularity going towards a computer science like approach to building these systems is pretty obvious it's still a minority approach at this time in time in terms of like any well funded efforts using this approach i i couldn't agree more i feel like every every few years we get obsessed about the model as the unit of innovation and then realize that progress is mainly uh made by the underlying data and systems that are the core engines of allowing folks uh to work with those underlying models and i think even in the investment sphere we go through a lot of hype cycles in and around data um because of that and and <laughs> forgetting that critical lesson i think another thing um i think praveen i just wanted to thank you so much for coming on and i also wanted to to point out that uh you all ml comms is open source uh and uh data perf is an awesome initiative i know a bunch of uh you know open ai etc has unlimited budget to go curate etc these data sets and um you have an awesome chat uh from icml that we'll link to about how folks can get involved but um we really appreciate you taking the time praveen and thanks so much for coming on to discuss thank you uh it was really fun i want to just leave you with one message if I, if i have another Please. moment of course um you know i was thinking about an analogy about this component idea for language models um and i realized that llms are like salt you know salt is very important it's a key ingredient like human civilization has grown around places where salt existed and it was very important for us uh it's important for our body to maintain homeostasis uh it it makes food you know uh, tasty um and if you look at the history of salt like the places the actual places in the world like salzburg in austria salzwedel in germany the the this same root sol for salt and they were created around the wealth that was created by salt and as the word salary is from the same root sol and at some point in time you know it was currency and so salt is very valuable but at the same time i can buy a kilo of salt for a dollar right salt is not where the money is being made even though it's so important and so critical and so to me i feel like llms are that useful what they are is a role as a component the role as an interface the role as enabling us to talk to things instead of using structured complex query mechanisms that is the salt like i imagine a world in which they will be part of every system that will make it a little fluent little more available to us in terms of natural language which is the human api which is our interface but it is not the product 
it has got to be put together with potatoes, with fish. We need to figure that out. And that's where the really interesting stuff will happen. And that is what I call the system two hypothesis. System two, the system two salt hypothesis. So you heard it here, her, you heard it here first. Uh, and also if you spill an LLM on the table, don't forget to pick some up and throw it over your shoulder for good luck. I'm kidding, but that's excellent analogy. <laughs> Praveen, thank you so much for being on. You're, you're, you make a lot of these, frankly, really difficult concepts digestible. And I think that anyone who listens to this is going to walk away just mind just all over the place on like what they can be doing better about not just their models, but their data and their infrastructure. So Praveen, thank you so much for being on the show again. And uh, uh, we look forward to seeing you again, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you.